All right, everyone. Welcome back to another week of Living with Will. Um, it's been a wild amount of time since I spoke to you guys last, and what a strange time it's been. I mean, the election, we don't even have to go into that fucking mess. Um, but God, I mean, I'm just, I'm so grateful for interviews like these because they keep me sane in such an otherwise insane time. Uh, for starters, I want to say my heart is out for anyone who's suffering with COVID or, you know, any truly any suffering at all, you know, my heart is with you. Um, successes and blessings to anyone who listens to the podcast. As always, please like, comment, subscribe, tell your friends about it if you can. It helps me keep the podcast going. But regardless of all that, you know, I just hope everybody is doing all right um, with these strange, ominous times that we have. Um, in a more positive light, it is interviews like these that keep me happy and keep me sane. So I'm very excited to share this interview with you. Um, Tamara Williams Van Horn is currently Associate Director of the Office of Intercultural Engagement and the Center for Inclusion and Social Change at CU Boulder, the school that I attended where I met her as a professor at the time. Um, I was a young, hot-headed hoodlum, a vagabond of sorts, and it was professors like Tamara that really shaped me and helped mold me into a better person. Um, Tamara strives to be the community's educator, using intersectional feminist values to leverage the power of our shared narratives as a challenge to professionalism as violence and invite in community care. Um, And this really speaks to who she is as a person and who they are just as a human being on this planet. I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity to do this interview. We speak on subjects from our college campus that we were both on as student and faculty and just the world and the civil rights movements that we see, the necessity for patience and honing and understanding and the knowledge of the world around us. I am forever grateful for this and humbled to be able to have shared space and time with this brilliant mind. So thank you so much, Tamara, and I hope everybody enjoys this episode as much as I did. Welcome back to another week of Living with Will. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time and um, clearing some time in your schedule to do this conversation. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So I I like to start these interviews kind of the same way, depending on what people do, and just kind of ask you, how did you get started on your path to working in education? Oh, mercy. Um, (laughs) So a lot of my family are in education in some shape, form, or fashion. So that's probably the easiest um, citation is that it's it's fairly easy in my family. You're you're going to be a helper of some sort, and um, I'm not very good at being a police type person, mm-hmm. and I'm not very good at being a counselor or therapist. And so, education was like the easiest. Um, the most straightforward uh, way to, to do what my family does. And I'm one of those people who was born to be in the general family business, as it were. 
I love that. I, I love how it, it's so funny because these interviews range from musicians to activists to psychiatrists to, to educators, but it always has this common link of familial bond, which is, I find so interesting that depending on where we come from, it really informs the career paths and the, and the, the you know, the passions that we have. Absolutely, because I will tell you, growing up, I was a textbook Republican capitalist kid. I liked to wear suits and carry a briefcase. My hero was a character called Alex P. Keaton. Um, I wanted to run a big corporation. And so to it's easy to say now that it was a straightforward path into education, but it certainly wasn't what I thought I was going to be when I was growing up. So that's, that's really interesting. I'm glad that you brought that up. So being that you were like this capitalist driven woman and then finding your way to where we met, which is at CU Boulder. Um, and now you're the associate director of intersectional identity development and women's leadership. If I'm correct in that. It's a little bit different title, intercultural engagement. We changed offices. It's a whole thing, but yeah, um, that's so it, it actually all changed for me. Um, so even in high school, I I knew kind of how I wanted to be in the world. I thought that I could be in the world as an attorney or a corporate guru and still be a, a person who was good to other people and a person who looked out for other people. I'm a big sister, so I've always looked after people smaller than me. Um, and so I was in Future Educators Club and, and I was a big sister like the mentoring program so that was in high school but then um I went to Cornell University I'm originally from Cincinnati Ohio and so for me a kid who was raised in the projects getting into an Ivy League school was a really big deal mm -hmm. even if I was going for something kind of weird but still corporate which was hospitality management I was going to be uh, an international uh, labor rights attorney uh, for some big hotel conglomerate and travel the world um, and and I got to Cornell and had never really dealt with uh, inequality in in an in a financial or economic way. It had always been like very much everybody did community service in Cincinnati, um, and so and race was very binary. There were pretty much only identifiable black people and white people, mm -hmm. and we used to tell everybody else, really, with the arrogance of youth, you have to choose a side. So if you were Hispanic or Latino or Asian, you had to just pick a side and. There were only two flows of conversation, but being at Cornell, which is in upstate New York, um, for those of your listeners who might not know where it is, mm -hmm. um, and also is a mix of schools that are publicly funded by the state and private. So you can go to a private university or a public school at the same university. That was all like very, very strange. I met Caribbean folks for the first time. Um, I really began to understand uh, protests and solidarity movements in mm. a different way from than books and like documentaries. And um, although I 
basically flunked out of my freshman year, um, I left with a lot of political consciousness and mm. I was never the same again. So even coming back to my hometown, which is Cincinnati and enrolling at the University of Cincinnati, um, that everybody did community service that was now different. Um, you now did community service in order to kind of advance a larger conversation on behalf of, uh, of kind of your ethnic group's dignity and uh, right to self-determine in the world. And that really took me on a journey because I wound up not being able, able to go back to um, pre-business or, or business as a as a major, and I wound up majoring in African-American studies, and that's what my bachelor's degree is actually in. Amazing. Yeah, and, and for people who don't know, our, we met because I was an ethnic studies major at CU Boulder, and at the time, you were working in the sociology department. Yes. So, so I finished uh, University of Cincinnati, graduated in the 1998. Um, I worked some of every kind of job that, that there is to work for 10 years uh, and then had some events that just kind of pushed me in the direction of graduate school. Mm -hmm. Had some folks kind of say to me, you, you would really do well in graduate school. Um, and so I spent about three months deciding uh, how to how to figure that part out, how to go from being a working professional. I was 32 or 33 at the time um, to being a full time graduate student. And so I accepted um, admission to the University of Colorado and intended to do both my master's and my Ph.D., um, so your listeners know I did not finish my PhD. I left what the industry calls ABD, which is all but dissertation. Um, I had done about eight years in the department and it wasn't fun anymore. And I wasn't, uh, doing the teaching that I wanted to teach. I wasn't doing the kind of research that I wanted to do. And the service part, those are the three main ways, uh, academics get credit for, for their work lives, the service part was something that was supposed to be on the side after you had done the teaching and the research. So mm -hmm. the parts I liked and got a lot of experience and a lot out of were the parts that no one else really wanted me doing. So I just had to go and do something else with my life. And that took me on a journey that eventually brought me back to CU um, at the time as the assistant director of the Women's Resource Center, but the campus was moving in a different direction with their programs, and we wound up bringing three offices together in a really new innovative center that serves um, serves underrepresented students' needs for um, services and support and programs to, so they feel like they have a better belonging in kind of an unfamiliar and sometimes hostile space. But also we do a lot of education to the larger community about what it's like to be an underrepresented student and, and how that might um, be different from kind of the mainstream uh, catalog experience of CU Boulder or website experience to update the reference. Right. Is um, Could you speak a little bit for, for listeners who might not know kind of some of the, the problems or the situations that might require having, um, you know, an, a, a 
creating a system that helps um, underrepresented students, like why that would be required? Because I Absolutely. Yeah, so our office works with a number of different students, listeners. So we work with first-generation college students, those students who neither one of their custodial parents has actually graduated um, from a four-year institution. Um, we serve women and femme students. Um, we also serve uh, students of color, so ethnic and cultural communities, and we serve trans and queer students. So that's a wide range of different student experiences but what we're trying to do with all of our programs is to kind of normalize the experience of being quote-unquote different so Mm. if you are a queer student for example or or you know questioning your gender and sexuality when you get to college that might cause some issues on the very first day with you just moving into your your residence hall and meeting your roommate. Um, mm-hmm. You might not actually be in the right living situation for all those parties to be comfortable. So we mm-hmm. just try with whatever means and expertise and using our lived experiences to make a lot of space for conversation on campus about difference and about people's life experiences and we also try to encourage kind of the whole campus to um, really tune into their own story and how their own story is distinct in particular because one of the things that we have found in in our work I've been doing some version of what we call diversity work um, for about 30 years but is is that when people don't know their own story or feel uncomfortable about where they fit into the system, it's way harder for them to make room or make space or make any allowances for anyone else who shows up uh, with any difference. So why do you need extra time on a test? Because you just do. I don't care if you have a diagnosed learning difference. I don't care if it's because uh, you don't, that's English isn't your first language. Um, I want to be in a position to leverage education as something that everyone can access um, rather than something that's way up high in a tall tree somewhere that only a few people can get to. Completely. And, and that also you remind me of um, a Marcus Garvey quote where he said, someone who doesn't know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like someone who doesn't know their own history is like a tree with no roots. Absolutely. It's so funny that you say that. I am sitting in my desk chair and on this chair is a quilt. And the quilt is made up of old t-shirts from mostly from my college days. And um, one of the formative experiences in my life that has kind of guided so much of who I am is from the racial awareness program, which is a program out of the University of Cincinnati started by us staff person and some students to really deal with racial tensions that were happening on campus. Mm -hmm. And so it grew into a student organization and a student program that did dialogues all year. So for a year, you were committed to showing up 
twice a month for three hours on the Sunday with a group of people who were very, very different than you. And they were selected through an interview. And you just talked about race from every angle. Mm. You talked about race from a gender angle, from an economic angle, from your own personal story. Um, we would break down into different kinds of groups. So men would break off and have a group together and kind of talk about men's stuff and you know same with with other gender expressions so it was it's and and one of the slogans on our t-shirt is that marcus garvey quote so it's so funny that 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 you said that um it's it's one of the principles by which i guide my life that's amazing well i'm so i'm i'm really grateful that i that i remembered it in that moment and it's a it's an amazing quote i mean an amazing man like um and I'm, i'm really glad that that it kind of, t- I love how things tie together like that. I'm really into <laughs> those types of things. It's like a kind of, it's one of those things where it's like you can't even really explain it. It just happens. Like when you think about someone and then they call your phone or something. Absolutely. Synchronicity. Mm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, and I love what you were saying too to kind of go, go back into what you were talking about. It's so interesting when I hear you speaking about these programs, like they sound so empowering and they sound so needed and, one of the things I found really bizarre when I was, you know, going through the ethnic studies program at CU was the response of, you know, um, the the powers that be in education. Like we watched an, a documentary about a superintendent in Arizona who described ethnic studies as revolutionary anti-white rhetoric. And we see with, with 45 and the way that he speaks about um, racial sensitivity training as being anti-American. I, has that been an experience that you felt at CU? Is that something that you can speak on, kind of the response from the community? Yeah, absolutely. So certainly as, a, as, as an aspiring professor of sociology, I was underprepared with a bachelor's degree um, in, in African-American studies. I was unprepared for the level of resistance to kind of mainstream academics, the the core curriculum, Mm -hmm. um, and the students who got to experience that, they were very, very, very resistant overall to anything that disrupted their general worldview. And it, it it was race in my and and gender in my situation, but it wasn't limited to that. Um, even the queer prof- the queer teaching professors I identify as queer. It's a long story. Um, I never overtly taught in in that identity, um, but even the queer professors got a lot of pushback for. Um, having trying to indoctrinate we we get told that a lot as professor type people that we're trying to indoctrinate people when we're passionate about sharing um an alternative history or understanding or perspective and that was really really it was hurtful to me because i've met some of my best friends in the whole world um from doing this kind of just being curious, um, not necessarily needing to know the answer the whole time. Um, So there's been a lot of pushback in the past. I will say that the students of every stripe have been on the forefront of keeping the powers that be 
accountable to this current racial reckoning that we're having. Mm. Um, ever since students have gotten a hold of things like the Black Lives Matter movement, they have been really, at CU, they have been really, really on the cutting edge of saying to not just faculty, but also upper level administrators like the provost and chancellor, this is what we want to see on our campus we would like to not just see cosmetic changes, we really want to see policy and operational changes, and we'd like to see changes in the curriculum. And so that's been um, really heartening. Uh, there's a lot of passion and energy behind it. I wish it was a little bit more well-informed, like... Mm -hmm. As a former professor, I want everyone to read and to love reading and to really uh, situate themselves in a historical understanding of what folks have tried before that worked and what folks have tried before that didn't work. Um, but, but no one can have it all their way. And no. I don't think that if everyone sat in their seats and were polite little bookworms like me, that we would see the level of change. So, right, at the same time as I have my preferences, I totally understand the need for uh, a more active, disruptive, less studied approach uh, as well. What are some of the concerns that you have as far as um, maybe some activism that you're seeing that you're, that you're concerned about? Well, for example, you know, I think that the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, as a student of social movements, I've studied the civil rights movement, I've studied uh, uh, reconciliation movements like post-South Africa, post-Rwanda, so not just revolutionary, like, fight to overturn the system, but as, as a person who studied movements, I think that... Any person who wants to be in a movement or certainly run a movement, it is in their best interest uh, to study mm. and study deeply. I think that's one of the things that the civil rights movement got right. Um, they used the churches and the new uh middle-class black folks who had some academic experience to really train the street soldiers of the civil rights movement in a lot of cases, not all, in a lot of cases on how to respond with a nonviolent approach, what the philosophy is behind that, how to take care of your body and your mind mm. in order to keep going out and doing this thing that is not just hard, but hard to keep up, right? Mm. It's, it's, it's hard work. There's not a lot of thank you for it. Mm. And, and I think that a lot of the pain that we're hearing from the streets is coming from a place that says no one else understands. And I think that if people did read more, uh, they would feel like folks understood, mm. especially James Baldwin. I mean, you don't even have to read The Usual Suspects, and I get that. I, I get that people are, are sick of having versions of Martin Luther King or even Malcolm X shoved down their throat, but there are incredible um, women 
who were in the movement and who wrote about it. There are incredible native folks. Um, there are incredible, what we call third world activists at the time. That was the label that they called themselves. Um, so you can look at Indian movements for, and I'm talking about India from India, mm-hmm. movements for, for sovereignty, um, African movements for sovereignty, um, all over Asia and even Eastern Europe. Um, all of the, the stands, the Kazakhstan, the Uzbekistan, all of those movements have incredible thinkers and poets who have written about the struggle in a way that I think would be very comforting for folks who reach out and, and take advantage of that, that opportunity. Um, but I also think that it's part of the system's plan that young folks don't read. Mm. So, um, I'm v- and, and, and I saw it in the way education was carried out at CU. And it's one of the reasons that I will not willingly uh, be a professor anymore. And that's because um, it's no fun for anyone. No one's having any fun. The, the professors aren't having any fun. The students that I taught weren't having any fun. And that's not how it has to be. Uh, I've seen it different. I certainly experienced different. Um, and and I think that it's a part of our 24-hour news cycle speed-up culture that folks are now being supported in getting to, quote-unquote, success quickly and, efficiency, and, and efficiently. And that's not... That's not how learning actually happens. Learning is planting a seed and seeing what grows. And that's not always like um, in nature, you know, there are volunteers all the time. You don't know where the acorn, it doesn't announce itself. Like Mm. I came from Texas, I'm a Texas acorn. Um, You just see what comes up in the springtime. And and I think that education has become much more of a factory kind of stamping out similar versions of the same thing and calling it innovation. So that's saddening, but everything cycles. So we're just in a point in the cycle. We've been here before. Speak on that a little bit. How, how do you, how so? Um, so as a student of history who refuses to be a historian, I'm always going to be a poet first. So I'm always looking at the ways that, you know, people still read the Bible for a reason. And I don't think it's to be an instruction manual for life. I think that when the Bible is doing its work or the Quran is doing its work or the Torah or the Talmud or any of these, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, any of these texts, I'm not trying to privilege anyone, is that there's something beautiful and overarching that helps us kind of get our direction. It's like a compass. Mm. And so it's not supposed to be an instruction manual. Like I don't actually think that the dietary rules in Leviticus are meant to be followed by people who are not in the desert anymore. Like it's fine to eat shellfish. I do not think that some deity is gonna like strike you down because you had a slice of bacon. Um, But what's important about those stories and why some of them are so similar and why some of our most favorite stories in popular culture today look like some of those stories is that there are certain 
structural pillars that are just um, that were given to us for our perpetual use. It's like having a really good, well-built house or church structure. You can renovate it a million times over. You can put different brickwork on it, but but the actual structure, the the foundation and the studs of the walls, those remain really sound and really renewably useful. And the skin over top of it, I mean, that's like just whatever, that's fashion. And fashion's great and it's cultural, but it's one time in one place. Um, but what's underneath is really what's useful to us as a species mm-hmm. over time. So that's why I say I think we're in a cycle and I think that when we forget that we're in cycle, we can freak out, especially when things look dire, like climate change it has got me shook. Mm-hmm. The election, it, it has me shook. But then I reach back to, to people who endured things that were way worse, even going back to World War II. Like my grandmother, who is now 92, uh, if she didn't have dementia, she would look at us like, what are you talking like? This is mm. not bad. Yeah. yeah. No, she used it's... to have ice blocks that she'd go to the end of the block and pick up and drag back to her house because they didn't have a refrigerator. They had an ice box. Yeah, wild. And I'm talking to you on a computer that's the size of my hand. Like, that's just <laughs> kind of mind-blowing to juxtapose. No, that's a great point. I, I do think that painting that comparison, it helps when when things look so bleak. I was kind of having that conversation with my dad about where we're at right now, and I was like, as as horrifying as things seem, we're speaking out against it, and people are rising up in numbers. The The activation of white Americans in these protests, I'd never seen before. You know, like, I, I, it's, I think it's a little late, obviously. Like, I'm like, come on, guys, like, let's get into this fight. But it's really, people are getting motivated to create change in a way that I hadn't Absolutely. quite seen. And, I mean, Gil, when, when I was an undergrad, which was between 1993 and 1998, um, if you were not a, a black person... Um, not just black person, if you were not an African-American from the United States, um, you did not major in anything like ethnic studies. Just less than one generation later, I'm talking to you, who is an alumni of the ethnic studies program. Like, I think we get impatient about progress, um, I get impatient about progress. I, I'm, I, I'll speak for myself. Um, but when I think about it, because I was complaining the other day because my friends, quote unquote, who are white, who I went to high school with, they don't teach their kids racial. I'm like, what, what, what have we been friends for all this time? Mm-hmm. What do you mean you're just beginning to understand all the Right. So I yell at them. But that's not, I mean, that's not really doing any good. Thank goodness we've been friends for 35 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it's it, time. I think for us as individuals, time moves very slowly. I think that when you look at things like 
the development of the internet, it feels like we're, the humans are slow and that we should be sped up. And I think that's actually the most dangerous position to be in. I think we really need to slow down more and pay more attention to things like the life cycle of trees and how long it takes for a forest to recover after a fire mm-hmm. and things like that. I think that's where our real answers are going to lie. I, I think we've done a bit much with extracting the maximum productivity of this moment. Wow, I really appreciate that. And now that. we're kind of tripping over ourselves, you know, like little mm-hmm. kids when they start learning how to walk. Mm-hmm. And they get going real, real fast, but it's because if they stop, they're going to fall over. Um, I think that's where we are as a country. And when you look at where we are in our development compared to other countries, we really are the toddler of the globe. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're young. Mm-hmm. We're incredibly young. 250, 60 some odd, you know, right. we're, we're babies. We don't know anything. Mm-hmm. China has done this five, six times over. I'm not saying they've gotten it right. I'm just saying they've had more cycles. Right. You know, Europe, they've got buildings that are older than anything in this country that we call American. So it's just, it's putting things in perspective that helps me calm down these days and also is what helps me kind of pull things out of my bag of tricks when I'm in an educating situation. Because now what I do is um, I don't grade, I, I don't take anybody's papers and I usually don't have anywhere close to 16 weeks to spend with them. Mm -hmm. Um, I've usually got 90 minutes, if that. Most folks give me 45. And in that time, I have to essentially set a table that is so inviting that they're willing to come back to it even after I've left. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of cool. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a great way of, honestly, and it goes back to what you were saying about making teaching fun. I think that that's really, I think you put it perfectly. If you can make it something that you don't even need to be there anymore, people are excited to come back to even without you being there, that's that's the key. That's the key to knowledge. And, and I just really found that what I was asked to do in that professor context, it may be the perfect platform for certain folks, but... But to be told, you you have this amount of time, you have to get cover all of this material every single time, no matter what, and then you have to have a finish line already preset, and only some of the people can cross the finish line, Mm -hmm. because we've got this thing called grade inflation, so if too many people get A's, then you're not teaching right, and so you have to set up some people to fail, and you can't say who those people are. It was it was so I was like, this is too much. This is complex. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. I it's it's unfortunate that education is in that way because I, I feel like it's a disservice, you know? Well and it it comes I think it started from a good place and mm-hmm. it just became 
something that people do unquestioningly. And that's my big thing. That's why I became a sociologist. Question everything. Not because you're trying to cause trouble, but because if you don't question everything, you never know what you really believe in or what you really want to put up with or what's really going to be good for you in the long run, right? It's just accepting what someone else gives you. Um, And that is one place where I just cannot be controlled. I'm very particular about what I eat. (laughs) That to me is like telling someone you can only have this one dish for the rest of your life and it doesn't matter if you're allergic or have a gluten allergy, you know, like whatever, you, you have to have this one thing. Yeah, it's not going to work. <laughs> nah. Nobody's going to show up to your restaurant and give you money and be happy. And you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like all the reasons you go out to eat. You don't go out to eat to see a bunch of miserable people trying to get it over with as quickly as possible. And that's what a lot of classrooms felt like mm. to me. Yeah. No, I, I can resonate with that. That's, I, I never really was the biggest fan of academia because of that fact, you know, I wanted to enjoy it. And I felt like enjoying it was frowned upon almost. Well, and then, and then when you do get the, when they give you the so-called freedom to be innovative, you've got a bunch of folks who are so conditioned that they're scared Mm -hmm. to take a chance. Mm -hmm. They're scared to do anything, but that's against the rules. You're not allowed to not give us a final exam. That means that you don't care about us. That means you're not doing it right. No, I just don't think that a final exam is going to be the best use of any of our time. Mm-hmm. But but people are so afraid. I'm not going to, my mom said it has to be like this, or my church said it has to be like this, or you know, I saw it on TV. This is what college is supposed to be like. And I'm like, nah, I don't want to play this game. That's that's not a great game. And I, and I think what you're speaking on right now is kind of the issue with the country's acceptance of others, you know, like other people, is that they have been conditioned to think and believe in certain ways. And then once that gets challenged, it's really shocking and jarring, even though it's like, you're being exposed to something beautiful and you're being, you know, you're being frightened of it. It's really bizarre. It's kind of this, I think it's kind of the way that these people become racist or homophobic or any of these terrible systems of oppression is that they've just, they just don't understand, you know? Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, my spouse likes to watch a mystery science theater. Okay. And, uh, there's this one episode that's based on a movie where, uh, these these explorers accidentally find these mole people. And they're a society that's never seen light. So to them, light, they, you know, they've grown accustomed to being in the shadows, you know, not having access to quote-unquote natural light. And mm. so the sun to them is an enemy mm. because it, it actually hurts. And that's what the image that came up when you were talking about um, people are being exposed to something beautiful, but, but their response suggests that it's anything. But I really think it is that folks are conditioned to kind of be mole people. And it's like 
some of these approaches, and I'm not saying that they're bad approaches because they are jarring. I am just saying that whenever you have a sudden change, right, where light floods in, you're going to have people whose eyes are more acclimated or less acclimated Mm. to that flood of light. And so a spectrum of responses is not surprising. It's frustrating, but it's not surprising. But that's the image that came up for me. It's not that people are are bad people to the core or unwilling to change or just quote unquote so ignorant um which i think a lot of young people that's where they are is like you're just so ignorant i can't even deal with you i'm just gonna walk away but that's not actually feasible Mm -hmm. we we are interdependent as a species we can't walk away from one another which is why this millennial slash okay boomer that thing it's cute and funny when I'm in a petty mood, and today is National Tamara Van Horn Petty Day. <laughs> I am celebrating all things petty today, including Mariah Carey's new memoir. Um, but, but in the large scheme of things, like parents need children, and children need parents. Mm-hmm. Like as a generation, I'm not talking about individual families because there's right. some crappy children, some crappy parents. Right. But, but we need each other and we need each other to be interdependent. We need the wisdom that our el- elders give and they need the energy that the younger generations bring mm. to refine that wisdom. It's not that the wisdom is the thing. It's that the wisdom plus the energy can refine itself into what I think people call truth. Mm-hmm. But if you only have one end of the equation because everybody's mad at everybody else, you ruined the globe for us. Well, you know, I know people like to think that, but the globe was pretty bad before baby boomers got here. Yeah. In fact, World War II is the reason we have so many baby boomers. So mm. I don't think they started the downward spiral. They helped. Let's be real. They mm-hmm. helped. But mm-hmm. but at the same time, first of all, millennials are almost 40. I think it's time people, old people get new vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You're not even talking about the people that you think you're talking about. Right. And second, it's time for us to actually have a conversation about, okay, there has been some harm done. We can clearly see damage. We can keep pointing fingers or we can sit down and figure it out. Right, right. I'm on the figure it out side of things. And I personally, I love young people. I think young people are awesome. I wish that older folks would move out of young folks' way, like, perpetually Mm -hmm. throughout history. I wish, like, I really wish Ruth Bader Ginsburg had her retired Mm -hmm. rather than died in office. I, I think that was... The arrogance of I know better than you, Sonny, and and now people are kind of freaked out because The Handmaid's Tale is in real life. Mm. Um, and we're not used to having sci-fi novels be real life. Right. Um, but, but at the same time, I see people doing this kind of work. I see community gardens in Denver, um, Detroit, L.A., where folks are reaching out and teaching people how to do things. Um, young people are teaching old people how to 
cultivate crops again and even if it's cannabis i don't care um they're teaching us how to put the finger up at white folks as as a system right Right. not individual white folks but as a system Mm -hmm. there are a lot of elder black and brown and indigenous people who learn to keep their heads down and just be a good janitor or be a good maid or be a good secretary and everything would be okay. And these are some of the same people who are on TV crying, like, why did you shoot my son? And young people are helping us see that you can't, that's not even turning the other cheek. That's just laying down and, and waiting for something to happen. So I think there's a lot of generative possibility that's happening. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited about that. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel that something new is possible. Um, it's not mainstream yet. It's still like, like back when the Black Eyed Peas sold tapes out of backpacks. <laughs> but uh, we're getting there. Yeah, slowly but surely. And that's something, I'm glad that you, that you brought it back around to that because I wanted to ask you, you, you were speaking so well about I mean, like, I, I, I just resonated with it so much of just, like, being patient. And, like, I'm such an impatient person, and I want to see this change happen. And, like, as I get older, you know, I'm still I'm st- still very young, but, like, I, I've changed a lot since I left CU. Like, while I was demonizing people that w- weren't understanding things the way that was. But then, as I got older, I was like, they weren't ethnic studies majors, man. Like, you'd be just like them. Or, like, I can't say that because I don't know who I would have been, but... I would demonize people who didn't know what I knew, right? Like you said, I would call them ignorant. And I'm trying to kind of build with people and, and, and work together and, and be more patient. But there are times where it's really difficult. And I know that there are people who the stakes are much higher. So their impatience is much greater. How would you speak to someone who, whose impatience is, you know, it's like it's dire. How do, you, how do you speak to someone like that to be patient? Well, I mean, I'm one of those folks, right? Mm-hmm. Part, part of my journey has, in, I've, I've always been a, a feminist because I was raised by a single mother um, and I was born in the mid-70s, so the 80s when there was lots of women's empowerment. and So I've always been a feminist. That was easy. Um, I've always been encouraged to be proud of my heritage and history and tell the black history story to anyone who would listen but being in graduate school and um, academically studying sexuality put a lot of things into place around my own gender expression and my own sexual identity for lack of a better word so i started experimenting with a non-binary identity probably in about 2000 10 and I got married to a cisgender heterosexual man white man in 2011 so um, I'm scared I'm scared and impatient and and impatient because I'm scared Mm. Um, I have a brother who's a a former felon um, and he has a lot of he's my baby brother and he has a lot of struggles um, with voting with even moving out of state seeing his kids um I'm terrified all the time, and my terror makes me impatient. Mm. What I do in real life is a mix of self-care and self-sabotage, like everybody else who's trying to make it. I do a lot of reading, and I do a lot of meditating on that reading. And that is not just like sitting and disconnecting my mind meditation, but I walk a lot. 
because I carry a lot of distress. Whatever I'm feeling, I carry it in my body. And one of the things that I learned being in a PhD program is how important it is for me not to be just a head um, and how much of there's information in my body. So I walk a lot um, and I walk fast when I'm trying to get energy out and I walk slow when I'm trying to kind of receive something and process something. Um, I talk to my friends a lot. I cannot under state the importance of having a squad of people who are smart and curious and don't let you get away with any BS. Mm. It, it's so important. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a group of the same women, friends, loosely the same six of us um, since high school. And that's really important to me. Uh, we have a group chat that we've been really using since the pandemic started. Some of us have kids, some of us don't, some of us are in relationships, some of us are single, um, but but we all pop into the group chat and we're ridiculous and messy there and it's okay. Mm -hmm. And it's not on our permanent record, it's not on Twitter, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's a, it's a safe space in that it's not just like, visibly safe that nobody's going to quote unquote tell on you, but there's actually people who care about you. Like they give a darn about how you turn out in the world. Right. And so they're willing to be in a relationship. It's not just, Oh, you you said one thing wrong. You're canceled. Um, it's, it's not that at all. So I would say read, move your body. And when I say read, I mean, consult the past. Some people read by going to an art gallery. Some people read by putting on vinyl records, right? Like, I'm not saying go to the library, pull out a book, and put your nose in it. I personally like that, but I like those other things too. But take in your environment around you. Don't just react to it. Take it in. See what it has to offer you. Have a group of friends and uh, to process with, and more than anything, figure out something that feels good to your body that is feels good in a life-affirming way. Like, I stay up too late. I scroll too much. Um, sometimes I have too many beers if I'm really stressed out. Um, but then if I do that every day, then I'm less effective. <clears throat> if I do it twice and I'm like, oh, let me let me take a bath. <laughs> let me do one less beer and one more bath right like but also being patient with yourself even with all this education i still freak out about stuff i know i know like i know like i know and i'm scared to death like everybody else i don't want to be martin luther king i don't want to die i don't want people i love to die and so that's like, you know, you have to kind of situate yourself in a, in a world where you know that death is inevitable. And so all we can do is, is make what's, my, my uncle says, what's between your dash. You got your birth date and your death date. Your dash is, is that's all you got control over. Mm. And that helps me be like, good kid patient um 
and good kid patient, right, is like when you were were a little kid and something would be coming up, an event like your birthday or the holidays, and you'd be like, mm, mm, I need, and you have to be patient. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I got to be patient. It's that kind of patience. I'm still working on that real knowing patience. Um, the old folks call it faith. Mm. I ain't quite there yet. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly not quite there yet, but I, I know people who have it and they operate in the world in a very different way than most folks. Yeah, it sounds like a very fulfilling way to move around the world. It's a tough one to achieve, though. I ain't there yet, and yeah. I'm 45. So uh, <laughs> when, when we say patience, like, we really, really mean that. Like, decades worth of patience. Right. No, yeah, I, I'll never forget. I was like, I think it was my first year coming back from CU, and I was, like, getting this kind of whirlwind of history of, and just kind of realizing the flaws of the country that I loved. You know, I grew up... I grew up um, in Europe, in France, and so I was always really like, and I would get jumped for being American, so I was very proud of being American. And when I came back, you know, I was, I was like loving being here, and then I started learning kind of the, the darker side of our history. And I'll never forget, I went back home, and I was talking to an old friend of mine, and just how like, we got to fix these problems, and we're going to fix them in the next few years, and things are going to be good. And he was like, you need to really get ready for a long fight, man. I don't, I don't think you understand. These problems have been around for a long time. They're going to persist for a long time. But it's really easy to kind of to, to want it to happen overnight, just like success in a career or, you know, in a relationship. You want it all immediately. But unfortunately, that's just not the way the world works. I wish it was. Well, and my message to younger folks out there would be to also give yourself a break on that um hormones are real and even our sense of time changes over time mm. like when you were little like little little summer vacation seemed like so far away from september right and and it seemed like forever but then over all of a sudden mm -hmm. by the time you were in university your relationship to time was different and and you and even as you know even as i i age it's really fascinating how a year will go by in the blink of an eye yeah but this year in general the things that i really when i want to see something really happen in my life i now know to give it at least 9 months of an incubation period before i see any expect to see any real results mm. and and i read that in a book when i was in undergrad um and that seemed like real grown-up stuff for me and so i ignored it <laughs> for for about 12 13 i mean seriously right mm -hmm. and then i i was like having a bad day and i put my hand on the shelf and pulled out the book and there it was like oh yeah build in nine months of an incubation period and see how long a long time is if you build that in at the beginning. It's like, oh. Because sometimes you're trying to force something. Totally. And, and it, you know, just like 
a, a baby needs a certain amount of time to develop and different species of babies need different times. Like, you know, women take nine months to, or parents, parenting humans take nine months to incubate a baby, but elephants are like 18 months, something like that. Something mm-hmm. ridiculous. Uh, nature wants its own time. I love that. And so I, I think we adjust our bodies adjust to the waves differently as we go through life if we're lucky enough to get that. Yeah. So be patient. If you feel impatient in the moment, be patient with that. I love that. I was going to ask you a question that is, it's, you've already given such amazing advice just in that sense alone, but I ask this question to everyone that I have come on and um, it's a two-part question. Hey, everyone. Uh, quickly, before we get into the question that I had to ask, I want to make sure that everyone, you know, um, advocates for themselves and advocates for what they want out of life. Be your own agency. So for anyone who's listening to this, it really means the world. If you like, comment, or subscribe, it helps me keep the podcast going, growing, expanding. And so, yeah, I just want to remind you guys, if you haven't, please hit that button. But regardless of all that, I hope you guys are all doing well. You're blessed, you're successful, and you're loved. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. These interviews mean the world to me. And, uh, yeah, this is a little ad break, but let's get right back into it because this interview could not be any better. Thank you all so much for tuning in. As always, much love. And, uh, yeah, let's see. Yeah. So we just took a quick commercial break (laughs) while I fixed the battery. But I'm going to ask you, it's a two-part question, and you kind of alluded to it, but... The first part would be, over the course of your life, um, what is, I mean, we all get advice and, and words of wisdom from our elders or our loved ones, but what are some words of advice that you've received that have really informed you in your life? Uh, so, in 1994, I was at Cornell. I think I knew that I was in trouble academically. Um, wasn't a great place to be. And the poet Sonia Sanchez came to campus to speak at a really small event, probably 50 folks there. And she signed my program and I still have the program today. It's a one piece of colored, uh, copy paper with a really bad copy on it of the uh, of the agenda and she wrote Ibe Yiye which is Kiswahili and she translated it and it that means things will get better wow that was that that's one of the best <laughs> and then um I was very very fortunate to be an undergraduate mentee of Patricia Hill Collins, who is a super famous sociologist mm-hmm. who's a black woman. She wrote a book called Black Feminist Thought. Mm-hmm. If you have not read it, folks, I highly suggest you read it. It will give you a whole new way of thinking about thinking. And and that, for me, is candy crack. Um, that's my favorite <laughs> thing, thinking about thinking differently. But she told me... Uh, Quit being a journalist. Sociologists have longer analyses. And uh, (laughs) to this day, it's not advice, uh, but to this day, I pull that statement out to gauge for myself uh, whether I'm jumping to a conclusion or whether I'm really thinking through to a reasonable conclusion. Mm. And that helps me stay 
less judgmental than I would normally be. Yeah, I need to take that to heart. I, ju- I definitely find myself jumping to conclusions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's super easy when you're amped up mm-hmm. about lots of other things. So those are the two short piece of it, uh, pieces of advice. And then finally, my mother, uh, you know, I've cited all black women. I don't think that that's accidental. I think that that's a blessing of my life is that I can say that there are some black women known and unknown famous and nobody's ever heard of them who have given me the best of themselves. And so I'm very grateful, but she tells me all the time, don't judge your outsides by don't, don't judge your insides by someone else's outsides. Mm. And that is so hard. (laughs) It's so hard. But this is the best advice ever. Yeah. Never judge your insides by somebody else's outsides. And that's great for social media. That's great for when your friend gets the the person or the promotion that you really thought should be yours. It's really useful for this modern day world that tells you that you're not enough. Yeah. Yeah, wow, I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful for all three, but that was great wisdom. And to come from your mom, that's the person you want to hear that from. Because you know it's going to be the hardest well, to absorb. I, no, it's, it's actually, it ticks me off. <laughs> because I've instantly become a teenager again. Like, like it's one of those things that, that makes perfect sense, but you didn't do it and you knew you should have done it and you're like but it's so hard exactly immediately become a teenager again every time she tells it to me even at 45 she can make me stick my tongue out at her it's so funny you say that I, i can't remember the exact quote right now but my mom would always say this thing to me and i'm i'm i hate that i'm blanking on it but i had an earlier interview with i want to say it was with fifth god and we're talking and he, I asked him the same question, what are some words of advice you got? And he said it to me. And in that moment, it made perfect sense. But I had known that my, my mom had been trying to say. So I had to tell him in the interview, like, my mom is going to love this because I finally understand what she's been telling me for 26 years. I know. Well, the weirder thing is hearing yourself say it mm-hmm. to someone else and be like, I am my mother. <laughs> I swore this would never happen. Um, But yeah, like, I mean, I think that's the... Somebody once told me that a soulmate isn't what Hollywood has sold you. Um, A soulmate is one of your greatest life teachers. Mm. And that that life teacher can come in any number of forms. And it's not always like hearts and flowers. Sometimes it's more like a pain in your royal behind. Mm. Um, And that for me, it, it gets under my skin every time. And I have another mentor who's a, a community development evangelist and organizational development guru named Peter Block. And he tells me all, all the time that the best questions make everyone guilty and everyone capable at the wow. same time. That's amazing. So I'm yeah. like, all right, well, that, that one counts. <laughs> yeah, that- if that's the rule, then that, that counts for everything. I love that. 
I love that. And, I, and I, this is my favorite part of this two-part question, which is what are some words of wisdom that you might have for people listening? Because it's always great to hear what people have told you, but I love hearing what the interviewees have to share. Well, I think I would share words of wisdom that I've been pondering ever since you reached out to me on Facebook, which is you never know. You know? Mm-hmm. We're all fellow journeyers. We're, we're, we're all on a journey. And you pass by people at, at certain stops and you think you, you've got the... You think you've got the read on them, you, you've got the poster, you've seen it, you've seen the trailer, you pretty much know what the movie's about, and that's just not true. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not true. Um, uh, and I, like I said, I come from, a, I've opened a museum, so I have a fondness for museums, but that's how I, I would treat everyone you meet like they have a museum inside them. Wow. And just see what happens if we just shift that. Mm. I'm not saying it will work. I don't have any idea. It's what I'm working on right now. And so, because I love museums, so if I treat people like I treat one of my favorite places, then that means my intentions are going to be solid. But yeah, and, and, and then I have found that people's stories are so cool. Mm-hmm. Like every, every, I don't like strangers, but if, if I meet someone who's got a good story, they're not a stranger anymore after mm-hmm. that. Right. Like I can go to a bar in Boulder and just sit there. And sometimes I really like to do this. I like to travel or, or go somewhere new and just roll up to the bar by myself with a book. And I see what kind of conversations I can have with people. What kind of stories can I hear? Who can I meet? And I, I've never been disappointed. The universe just gives me such incredible folks who, who just share and they're not doing it deliberately. It's not because I'm super special or unique. I'm not a great interviewer or anything like that. I'm not even that good of a listener. I mean, I'm better than some. I pay some attention to it, but I'm not great at it. As a brief aside, I wanted to share a path through this creative process that I have for anyone who might consider doing the same things. You know, sometimes you might want to ask a question or you might forget. Um, it might not happen when you want, but just know that you can always go back and kind of reorient, recalibrate, and uh, and get your questions in. So this is a great example of that. I had a question that I forgot to ask, so we're going to put it at the end. And I hope you guys are enjoying the interview as much as I did. It's fucking incredible. Um, so yeah, let's get right back to it. Just wanted to share that with you guys. I love you all. Oh, so um, I, am, I have a company. It's called Black Women Reading Aloud. And it is. it came from a, a, a download. I was on a plane and Um, all of a sudden my hand started moving and next thing I knew I had nine handwritten pages of all these ideas that basically channel one message, which is that as a nation, we do not have a habit of being able to listen to black women. And I, uh, I formed this company as a cultural intervention against that bad habit. So I, everything that we do is meant 
to encourage voice and encourage um, individual Black women to read aloud, encourage uh, Black women to read to each other um, in whatever form, their own words, uh, famous words, you know, whatever, and to just get in the practice of hearing our own voice in public space. I love that. So that's what I'm working on in in my in my quote unquote side hustle life, as the young people like to call it. But at work, I am um, shifting from student serving training and and programming to I'll, I'll be working with staff soon, um, really engaging them in a series of making a bunch of different sorts of engagement with diversity, inclusion, um, equity work and, and principles um, for staff at CU Boulder. So I'm going to be shifting into a position that does a lot more um, group training and planning of, of diversity events here soon. So I'm excited about both of those. And that's in an answer to some student uh, demands, by the way. Students have demanded that not only faculty be trained to be culturally responsive in the classroom, but when they go to the cafeteria, when they go to financial aid, when they go uh, to, to parking services, uh, folks are asking for, student folks are asking for less police presence, uh, more human-centered, trauma-informed responses, like some really sophisticated stuff. So I'm excited um, that the campus is at least trying to answer that demand in a real way because they're putting me there and they know I don't do things on the surface. So. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm excited to see where the future of Cedar Border lies. And maybe there could be a podcast component that you guys could do where you could kind of have people on and, and host host a, uh, a conversation. Just a, just you something know, to throw out there. I think the students would really see that as a, as a step towards transparency. So thank you. I will take that back to the folks uh, in all that. seriousness. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I think it would be amazing. I mean, that's one thing I really love about this medium is that it gives people... The, you know, a place to hear people speak, you know, that's what I love about podcasts. It's like reading a book, but you're getting to hear the author tell you what they thought when they wrote it. <laughs> Absolutely. My, my spouse is obsessed with LeVar Burton's um, reading podcast. And that's part of where I think Black Women Reading Aloud came from, because he came, he, he's not really... Um, super engaged uh, we are kind of opposites mm. he's, a, he's a military brat who is used to just dealing with his own nuclear family and i'm like miss social um but he really loves that podcast because of the way lavar burton uh gives life to these short stories these words that would just lay flat right but mm. but he's giving them the it, color and texture and movement mm. and 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 it's just such a useful medium to so many people especially i'm big on access and mm. so our our disabled friends who struggle to kind of track printed page across printed text across the page with a podcast or someone reading aloud or even if it's their own story um 
so many more people can access that. Exactly. Yeah, it changes it changes the landscape. It's really amazing. Well, listen. So yeah, I would love to see that at CU. Awesome. Yeah, and maybe you know it could be part of Black Women Reading Aloud. You know, it could be they could be um, on they Apple. Can't have my company. <laughs> no, it could be part of your company. It could be you could have a podcast component to your company. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely part 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 of the plan. Um, <laughs> there there will be either it's it may not be a podcast where. Mm-hmm. You know, we're high high tech, high sedity. YouTube is my medium of choice. So that more like videoed. uh, But yes, very much, very much that is coming soon from Black Women Reading Aloud. So look out for that. Awesome. I can't wait. And I'm sure the people that listen can't wait. And I would love if there is a site or when there's a site, please let me know. I'll put it in the description. When there's a site. When. Yes, I will. Awesome. And we'll put it in the description and maybe we can even do another episode, promote it. You could have, we could, you could co-host and have someone else on oh, if you want. Oh, that'd be so cool. Cause yeah. I'm, I will say I usually don't do anything by myself. Um, I'm old and I don't want to work this hard that much longer. <laughs> so I usually bring an apprentice or some eager young person with me along because showing people the ropes is, is a big value of mine. And so I would love to bring some of the students that I'm working with now who are really bringing this conversation forward and to be truthfully honest i follow them as much as i lead them um they tell me what to do and and i do it amazing yes the the concept of collective leadership absolutely it's so important to me and i've really experienced it and seen the benefits of it so Mm. folks out there listening uh if you hear conviction in my voice it that that is that is my selling point. I I can't tell you what the experience is like, but once you have it, you will not go back to the traditional uh, one man in front of the room telling everyone what to do. Mm-hmm. Completely. No, and I, in my own way, I've, I've had, I, I'm obviously not a similar experience. It was really difficult for me to get that sentence out. But in my own way, I've had experience with it where working with people and understanding that, like, that trope of the one leading person it doesn't work it it can and but it works better if everyone is involved in the leadership process and the following process and you know it's a give and take absolutely and it's more sustainable that way to be all crunchy granola boulder (laughs) no but you're so right well listen i don't want to hold you any longer i've taken up a lot of your time and i'm really grateful for it so I want to thank you again, and I want to ask, is there anything that you want to kind of leave people with? Any final thoughts? My final thought is this. I would not have been able to tell you in 2011, 12, 13, 14, or 15 that Gil and I would have been on a podcast together as colleagues and as friends, and I am ever so grateful that the universe proves that our words should be tender because we will regularly have to eat them. Mm. It has been an honor to speak with you. I so appreciate all of the work, all of it. And and I see it and I see the different facets of how it shows up in your life. Um, you give me a lot of hope. Um, I'm really happy to support your efforts to educate yourself and your community, and I am a resource for you. If you ever need anything, please reach out and send your people to me if I can be of some service. Wow. I'm so grateful for those words. And also, I love the way that things have changed, too. My Facebook name is Gil Waynes, but my real name is Will Gaines. So I like how... <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. I know, and I keep doing that, but it's just so you. It's like, right, that slip, that's, that's how I really see it, is the whole, you were Will in the classroom, but that, like, what Will means, you know what I mean? Um, Stubborn, kind of close-minded, <laughs> But exactly. now you're Gil, you're, you're helping people breathe, you're putting air into places where it can really do some good. So wow, that's you. how I see the shift actually. So maybe that's why I keep messing it up. That's no, I, I'm, I love it. Every time I was going to say at the end, I was like, I don't remember if I told you that I'm still will. But no, you totally did. It's yeah, okay. just that, again, I think, I think sometimes we do things and we don't know all the reasons why we do them. But Definitely. yeah, I think I think you're really signaling something about how you engage with the world now. Well, thank you. That I mean, words cannot express how much that boosted me up. And people who are listening who know I, my ego is in check. I'm not letting my ego get overinflated. I'm just very touched by your words, so thank you. Thank you.